0: So we're going to look at Hebrews 7, and I'm sure people will be drifting in as uh, the clocks have thrown everybody out as well this morning, never mind different seats and things. But I was thinking, uh, you know, it takes so much time to actually read the whole chapter, but there's something so powerful, obviously, as we read publicly um, the Word of God. So I wanted to actually just read through the whole whole chapter. So if you'll uh, bear with me, really focus in on God. Let Him speak to you even as we just read His Word. There's so much power in it. So I'm actually going to start <clears throat> from, sorry, from the end of chapter 6, uh, verse 19. says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest ...forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life... Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar." For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness... But the Yoth, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. There's so much awesome revelation in those uh, few lines, really, in that amazing chapter. And we're actually halfway, or just over halfway, through the book of Hebrews. Uh, There are 13 chapters. We're in chapter 7. and. So I want to remind you that we're doing this book of Hebrews because we're considering who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? Who is he that we uh, worship, that we adore? Who is this man? And we're also looking at the fact that Jesus is better than everything. He is better than everything. And we see that this book is a calling to its readers to persevere and press on in God's promises. Their lives have changed. Their lives are now about Jesus, who is better than any other foundation, better than any other purpose, better than any other hope. And Jesus brings us and them, who the writer was writing to, into a whole new life that is centered on this person, Jesus. Centered on this person, Jesus. And Jesus brings us into the church, this brotherhood and sisterhood that is meant to fill our lives. So this book is an encouragement to persevere. It's also a warning. It's got many warnings in this book. We see warnings against drifting away from God. We see warnings against unbelief. And we need to really heed these warnings. Warnings are actually love being poured out. God gives us warnings because He loves us, because He wants us, to bring us back into focusing on the correct thing. He wants us to make sure that the main thing is the main thing. And so he warns us again and again. And this book is full of warnings. Those warnings are done in love. It's like when someone's about to go over a cliff and we say, stop, there's a cliff there. We do that because we don't want the person to go over the cliff and die. And warnings are about God showing us love. And His warnings to us through this book need to be heeded. He warns us that we are to grasp that we are called to so much more because of who Jesus is, this Jesus who is better than everything. He warns us to focus on Him and Him alone. He warns us that actually our best life is lived in Jesus Christ. It is better than any life that the Northern Beaches has to offer. Actually, our life in Jesus is so much more, so much better than anything that this wonderful, beautiful Northern Beaches lifestyle has to offer. And we need to heed this challenge because we are called to be a people of faith. <coughs> Excuse me. We're called to be a people of faith, a people that are born again. We're born again. We're not just added onto when we become Christians. We're not just reshaped when we become Christians, but we are actually done away with and born again. As Christians, we come into something radically new. We are totally different. And the question to us again and again has to be, do our lives reflect this? Is that what our lives, church, look like? Do our lives reflect the truth? of who we are in Christ. we meant to look like Christ ourselves. we called to imitate His great example. And so actually I'm going to jump into a verse at the end of the chapter and then we're going to come back because what is His example? We see it revealed in three key words that we see in verse 27. These three key words are, He offered Himself. He offered himself. And we see that Jesus freely, voluntarily gave up himself for us. He gave up being God's and came to earth as a man, and then he gave up his life to die on a cross for us. And those that haven't, of us that haven't come to faith yet, that haven't actually believed in Jesus Christ as Lord, we need to hear this, that he has offered himself. He has offered Himself for you. He has offered Himself so that you can have free access to God by believing in Him. The amazing thing is that He doesn't require us to jump through hoops or to prove ourselves. He doesn't even require us to be good people. All we have to do is accept the offer of Jesus Christ and believe who He is and what He's done for us. And for us as Christians, we are called to follow His example. We are called to offer ourselves for the sake of others. He offered Himself, and we are called to offer ourselves. That has got to be our focus. That's actually we live lives of sacrifice where we offer ourselves for others. Our focus cannot be our next holiday. Our focus cannot be our next job advancement. Our focus cannot be the renovations we are doing on our house. Ultimately, our focus has to be, how can I offer myself for the sake of others? Because that's what Jesus is calling me to, to imitate who He is. And we live in a society that is increasingly demanding of our individual rights, the right to be whoever I want to be and to be fully embraced uh, and recognized for who I want to be and given every opportunity to realize my full potential in who I want to be. We live in this age, really, where we, we feel entitled. And there's some great correcting in that from wrongs that have been done in the past where people have not been recognized. And there's some good things in that, but Christian Christian man and woman, we have to realize that we are meant to be offering ourselves as Christ offered Himself. We are meant to do the same. We call to live lives of sacrifice for the benefit of others. It's what we've got to be about as a church. It's why we put on Love, D.Y. is not just to have a good time, but so that we can sacrifice and offer ourselves for others. It's why I'm happy to call you to come next Sunday and to be involved in Love D.Y., because it's important that we are offering ourselves for others. It's why I'm happy to call you to prayer meetings rather than other things that fill up your diary. Why? Because we need to offer ourselves for the sake of others. These things have massive importance in terms of people being saved. It's people's very lives that are at stake, and we need to be a people that are happy to offer ourselves. And sacrifice uh, can be a funny thing, really, because I think if you are sacrificing for something that you really believe in, something that uh, your heart is in, then actually it ends up not feeling like much of a sacrifice. But when we're told to sacrifice, you have to do this, well, then we, we struggle sometimes. And so we've got to ask where is our heart? What is our heart full of? Is it to see many saved? Is it to see the kingdom come through the church? If I think of myself and sacrificing, I know that um, when uh, I was working in an IT company, it was a big corporate job, I was a vice president, and I felt that it was right uh, to resign from that and come and work full-time for Grace City Church that was a sacrifice in terms of finance. My salary uh, shrunk to about almost a quarter of what it had been before when I started working for the church. So that was a sacrifice. But to be honest, it never actually felt like a sacrifice because I knew that I was pressing into what God had for me. It was so exciting to be pressing into the purposes that God had for me. So you know, people have said, wow, that was, that was a, a sacrifice. Well, actually, it didn't really feel like it at the time. We knew we'd have to make adjustments with how we lived. We knew we'd have to uh, adjust how many times we could go out to eat and things like that. But really, it never felt like that much of a sacrifice because of where my heart was and because of what we were pressing into. So where is your heart? Are we in a place that we can follow Jesus who offered Himself. Let's jump back, though, to look at more of Hebrews 7, because we often take for granted what we have in Christ, and that can dull us. It makes us not realize what we have and what we have been given and what we are living for. So, as we look at this chapter 7, we see a lot about this guy Melchizedek. This guy, Melchizedek, and the writer talks about him, introduces him at the end of chapter 6. He says that he, that's Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And Mel, or Mel, <laughs> instead of say Melchizedek, he's mentioned actually only twice in the Bible, in Genesis 14, 18 to 20, which is where he interacts with, with Abraham, and then Psalm 110 verse 4. There are just two mentions of him, two mentions of him in the Bible. What the writer is actually doing here is actually he's using Melchizedek as a type for Christ. So he's using Mel as a type for Christ. The author is using actually not only what is said about him, but also what isn't said about him. So he's he's actually taking what isn't said about him and using that. So to quote one commentary, F.F. Bruce says this about Melchizedek. He says, he appears as a living man, king of Salem and priest of God Most High, and as such he disappears. So that's how he appears. Suddenly in Genesis is this king of Salem, and after two verses he disappears, and he's still king of Salem. Obviously, he was a real person that lived and died. He did have parents. But the writer looks at it and says he has no genealogy. He, he just existed. He's always been there. Because he just takes the writing and says, well, when we see him, there he is. He's king of Salem. And when we don't hear about him anymore, there he's king of Salem. He uses him as a type of Christ. So it's not that he had lived forever but it's how the writer is using him as this type, this example of Christ. So what do we need to learn from old Mel? Well, a few things. Let me list them. Firstly, his name means king of righteousness and king of peace, as we read. We see also that he was both a priest and a king. He was king and priest. We see that he is without beginning or end as a priest forever. We see also that he is greater than Abraham because Abraham tithed to him and Abraham was blessed by him. So the writer is saying, you tithe to the one who's greater and you are blessed by the one who's greater. So he was greater than Abraham. This implies that his priesthood was greater than the Levitical priesthood that came about through Abraham. So through Abraham when Moses established, uh, brought the Lord down from the mountain and established the priesthood, he said the tribe of Levi, so this is Abraham's, ancestor, uh, Abraham's um, descendants, thank you is the word I wanted, uh, Abraham's descendants, uh, Levi, one of those descendants, his tribe uh, was to be those that would serve as priests. Okay, so that priesthood then, which was held in Abraham, is less than this priesthood that was in Melchizedek. Melchizedek also had become a priest not based on ancestry. So in the law, as we said, Moses brought it. Uh, If you're part of the tribe of Levi, you were a priest when you died, someone took your place. They were a priest when they died, someone took your place. And so on it went through the tribe of Levi. but this guy well he lived forever he was not a part of levi he was before that he was something bigger and greater and so the things we are to learn from this comparison is that the then current priesthood that this writer the people he's writing to the priesthood that they are living under the jewish priesthood the levitical priesthood that it, he's saying, it has fallen short of what is required. That priesthood has fallen short. It was flawed and could not provide permanent forgiveness of sins. Again and again, day after day, they had to sacrifice for themselves that they would be cleansed and then for others. So that priesthood and the law was flawed, it could not provide permanent forgiveness. From sin. But when compared to the priesthood of Christ, this Christ type, Melchizedek, we see something very different. The old priesthood, that priesthood could not make men and women completely righteous. It could not give them unimpeded access to God. So he says to them, the writer of the Hebrews, he says to the people he's writing to, lift your eyes to this man, Jesus. Jesus, this man was born in the year 4 BC. He was born in Israel, but he was born into this tribe of Judah. Judah, which is where the kings came from, not Levi, where the priests came from. So he's a different type of priest altogether, a totally different type of priest. He did not follow in. Um, The house of Levi did not follow in that priesthood. He's a totally different type of priest. He is in the order of Melchizedek, this totally different type of priest king that lived forever. So that is why he's drawing this big distinction, saying Christ is of a totally different type of priesthood, and we need to look to Him. Christ is not the temporary solution that... The Levitical priesthood provided. Christ provides total, complete, forever solution to sin and to access to God. This is the huge difference. It's a once-forever solution. And let's look at some of the verses that we read about Jesus. They'll come up on the screen in this part of Hebrews. Firstly, We see in 619 that there's certainty with Jesus. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We see that Jesus is part of a new priesthood based on the power of an indestructible life. He lives forever. We see Jesus is a priest forever in verse 21. Verse 22, we see that He is the guarantee of a better covenant, a covenant that actually can do everything that the old law and old priesthood could not do. We see that Jesus is able to save completely those who came to God through Him. We see that Jesus is holy, blameless, pure, set apart, exalted above the heavens. And we see in verse 27 that Jesus was sacrificed for our sins once For all, when he offered himself. This is amazing news for us, not only for those that Hebrews was written to, but this is amazing news for us. And since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, mankind has been kept at a distance from God, being kept at a distance. The sacrificial system that came through Moses, the law, the way the Levitical priests worked. It provided some temporary cleansing, but it still kept us at a distance from God. There was still the the tent, the tabernacle. There was still the temple where there was the Holy of Holies, a place that was separate, where people couldn't go. Only the high priest could go once a year. We were still kept separate from God. But the priesthood of Jesus Christ, He makes us completely righteous, and He enables us to draw near to God, to draw near to God. And we sometimes, I think, take this free access to God for granted. We take it for granted, but it's an incredible privilege. We see in verse 25, it says, therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him, because He always lives to intercede for them. One of the commentators, F.F. Bruce, says, He lives eternally, eternally engaged to bless and protect those who have committed themselves to Him. The way of approach to God through Him is a way which is always open. A way which is always open. And this is the incredible thing, is that Jesus, our High Priest... He ensures our never-failing acceptance before God. Never-failing acceptance before God. And this picture in verse 25 of Jesus interceding or as a mediator before God, I think sometimes we think of it in the wrong way. Our picture can be that He's standing before God, pleading our cause in tears before a reluctant God. Sometimes I think that's our picture, but that is not the case. The picture is of an enthroned priest king asking what he will from a father who always hears and always grants his request. That is the picture of Jesus always interceding for us so that we have never failing acceptance of before God. Never failing. There's so many things that fail. Everything in this world fails. Actually, I, I was having a look at what machines have lasted that haven't failed. And you may be interested to, to know that there's a computer in Japan that has apparently been working since 1958 uh, with some minor improvements, it said, to keep it going. But anyway, since 1958. There is also a light bulb in California, in a fire station uh, in California, that has apparently been illuminated for 117 years. Since 1901 it's been going, better than any LED light bulbs, maybe you should get one of those for your household. But you know it's still going to wear out. That's pretty impressive, it's been going 117 years. But it doesn't last forever. It fails. But we have never failing acceptance from God because Jesus intercedes for us. You need to let that sink in. You know, that means on your worst day, you have total acceptance by God, on your best day, you have total acceptance from God. It's never failing. What Jesus has done is never, ever failing. We have total acceptance again and again and again, day after day. (coughs) Excuse me. No matter what's been going on in your life, no matter what you've been struggling with, no matter what addictions you're coping with, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you can come into his presence again and again and know being washed clean again and again. This is the amazing wonder of the gospel that we have never failing acceptance before God.